0: Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public
1: speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. I work for technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Melody McNeil. Her title is Director of Regulatory Policy and Intelligence. I don't know what that means, so hopefully she has the answers. (laughs) Because if she don't have the answer, I don't know, I don't know about all that. But (laughs) but, you know, I I from the bit of research I did on her, I saw that she studied pharmacy. So how'd she end up in in regulatory policy and intelligence? So I'm really interested to to find that out. So welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Melody. Thank
0: you. I really appreciate the invitation.
1: So as I said in the intro that you studied pharmacy. So what was the motivation to, to study that?
0: I always loved the sciences when I was in high school. I loved chemistry, biology, but I knew that I did not want to be a physician. I was interested in the science itself, but the immediacy and the reality of you know, having my hands in someone's chest cavity was definitely not going to be for me. And as a 17-year-old, I didn't really have the role models for a clear understanding of what it meant to do, quote, research. I was certainly aware of the concept of research, but I didn't know anything about academia and I didn't know you know what was I going to be re- researching, who would be decide what I'd be researching. I-, I just didn't know that world at all. But pharmacy felt like a practical outlet for my interest in the sciences. Um, Knowing what I know now, I might have, say, pursued a a Ph.D. in medicinal chemistry. I might have become a a formulation scientist for a pharmaceutical company or something like that. But at the time, you know, I think pretty much everyone um, has experience with going to their local pharmacy and getting a prescription filled. And that just struck me as a practical way of using my interest in science and even as a teenager i was very very practical i was very focused on what kind of career i could have that i could support myself and i knew that healthcare was a a robust um a robust career option that would serve me well and it has
1: nice so once you finished that degree did you actually work as a pharmacist
0: I did. I worked as a pharmacist in local community hospitals for many, many years. So um, I can definitely say that I have um, proved my myself in the clinical pharmacy arena.
1: Yes. Okay, but eventually you stop doing that because you're doing something completely different now. So what I guess was the motivation to leave being a pharmacist to do what you? Well, I guess the, the the path that you ended up taking.
0: I'm doing something different, but related. I definitely still consider myself a healthcare professional. I definitely still feel that I am making a contribution to public health, albeit in a a very different, I might even say indirect way. Um, So I worked as a clinical pharmacist for many years and liked it, but it started to get very, very repetitive. And also it started to get more and more what I'm going to call patient care focused. So keep in mind what I said a, a second ago, I always loved the sciences, but the immediacy of direct patient care was never something that I desired. That's absolutely, you know, patient care is certainly worthy. I think all of us will either be patients at some point or someone we care about will be a patient. So I I obviously, care very much, that there is good patient care to be had in America, but I knew that was not for me. And the the professional pharmacy started moving much more in the direction of direct patient care. And so that, combined with, as you might imagine, uh, most large hospital pharmacies are open 24-7. So after one too many moments of struggling in, in, in a snowstorm to get into work and having to work the overnight midnight shift, I found myself getting a little bit burnt out with clinical pharmacy practice and started looking for something else. So I live in the Washington DC metro area. And as it turns out, the US Food and Drug Administration is headquartered here in this area. And one of our part-time pharmacists at the hospital I was working at was um, working with me one night. And naturally you strike up conversation. And I said, "What you work here part-time, where do you work when you're not working here? And he said, I work at the Food and Drug Administration. Now at that point, I think I was certainly aware of the existence of an entity called the Food and Drug Administration, but that was about it. So I said to him, well, what is there for a pharmacist to do with the Food and Drug Administration? And he said, well, why don't you come visit me at work one day and I'll take you around and I'll we'll talk about that. And so I went there and I did talk to him and it turned out that there is a lot for pharmacists to do at the Food and Drug Administration. That could probably be the, the subject of two or three separate podcast interviews, but suffice it to say, um, he described a role that I thought I could contribute to well, and that I would really enjoy. And so that is how I ended up transitioning to the Food and Drug Administration. It's a much more academic, focus on the data. So keep in mind, that was really what drew me into the sciences to begin with. And for me, working at the Food and Drug Administration was an opportunity to learn about the data and to spend time kind of interrogating the data that are the basis of all of the drugs that are approved for use in the United States. And so it was a much more, in my mind, academic, much less direct patient care opportunity. And so that is what attracted me to it. And I really, really liked my time at the Food and Drug Administration. As I said, there are a number of opportunities there for pharmacists, for nurses, for physicians, all healthcare professionals. So that was definitely a a very fortuitous conversation that I had with that that part-time pharmacist.
1: All right, you know, Melody, when you were talking and you mentioned the fact that the clinical pharmacists that work in pharmacies have to be more patient centered, it made me think of COVID and me having to go get the shot. And I actually went to a pharmacy, and it was the pharmacist who actually administered it. So yeah, yeah. So I, you know, even before that, I didn't even know that was something that pharmacists even did. Uh, every every pharmacist every interaction that before that I had with a pharmacist was just to go to pick up a prescription. But I had I didn't even know that they were the ones that were actually giving out they, that they even did that kind of thing. So I guess is that what you meant when you said it was more patient centered, and that was kind of what you wanted to get away from.
0: Uh, yes, let me say that when I was a practicing pharmacist, the, the I never I was never trained to give immunizations or shots. I perceive that as something that's relatively recent. But let me give you an example of what I mean by, you know, patient care and patient patient facing. I always worked in hospital pharmacies and there are some hospital pharmacies where when they call a code blue that, you know, someone is in cardiac arrest. Pharmacy personnel are expected to show up at that code blue. So talk about an immediate patient crisis. So you are attending to a patient in cardiac arrest. You may be mixing IV solutions. You may be answering questions about whether two different medications are compatible and or not. Again, very worthy work, very meaningful work. There are pharmacists out there who absolutely love that kind of thing. I, I was not. I, I preferred to be you Know somewhere with the data, somewhere definitely not in that kind of immediate patient care setting,
1: okay? Yeah, I guess that when, you, uh, when someone calls a cold blue, that's a pretty high pressure kind of situation, and you yes, have to it, have...
0: yes, it is. And let me say again, there are men and women across the United States who live for that kind of thing, they absolutely love it. I think it is so important to know yourself and to know what you're built for and what you are interested in. And as it turns out, that is not the sort of work that I enjoy doing.
1: Got it. So now I, you know, I, I mentioned that you work now as a director of regulatory policy and intelligence. Yes. So I'm guessing that has well, I, I probably shouldn't guess. I should just ask you since you're right here, does that have to do with the data that you that you said that you really like to like to work with? Essentially, what does that job entail? It, it does, and I, that
0: title always makes me laugh because when you say intelligence, it kind of gives the impression of someone sleuthing behind a potted palm or something in a, a restaurant or in a dark alley. But it, it's definitely not quite that exciting. Regulatory policy and intelligence is uh, got two major categories in it. So I, I now I transitioned from the Food and Drug Administration to working for a pharmaceutical company, and so. Regulatory intelligence is the process of getting information, publicly available information from the regulators about the company's products and other products in that category. So getting information about those products and bringing it into the company. The regulatory intelligence is information that the regulators provide about their decisions, about kind of their priorities, their future directions, the regulatory approval standards that they're going to impose on particular products. So regulatory intelligence is the process of scanning the external regulatory environment and bringing that information into the company. We are very fortunate in the United States, the United States Food and Drug Administration is probably one of the most transparent regulators in the world very, very clear, predictable processes from the FDA in terms of what they're going to do, what their recommendations are for the development of a particular asset for a particular indication and and so on. So regulatory intelligence in the United States is a very different endeavor than regulatory intelligence in some other countries where, for example, they don't have notice and comment rulemaking. So if they have a new regulation, they just kind of publish it and say, here it is. In the United States though, we publish most regulations in advance and seek comment on them. So our government publishes regulations uh, publishes draft guidances, seeking comment on them. So you actually have the opportunity to shape and influence the external environment. And that's the regulatory policy piece of what I do. So taking my knowledge of clinical healthcare, taking my knowledge of, of regulation from my time at FDA and taking my knowledge of our company's products and using that to shape the external environment as it evolves. Nice.
1: With your with the job that you do currently, do you lead do you manage people at all?
0: I do not. I'm an individual contributor. Oh, okay. I, do, I should say I should say formally, I'm an individual contributor. I do have a lot of, you know, people that I mentor and I've certainly got colleagues who are less experienced than I am, and so I do mentor and give them advice, but formally no, I'm an individual contributor.
1: When it comes to being led, what do you think the number one rule of leadership should be?
0: It's a toss-up between vision and communication skills. Um, My own leadership strength, I would say, is communication. I tend to be, probably because of my pharmacy background, I tend to be very precise and very detailed. And so, If I am in a position of advising someone, um, mentoring someone, I tend to be fairly, fairly precise and detailed about the guidance I'm giving them. Or if I don't know the answer, of course, I am precise about telling them I don't know the answer. So I would say it's a toss up between communication and vision for sure.
1: It's funny that you mentioned communication, Melody. Because that's essentially what this whole YouTube channel and podcast is about. Yeah. yes <laughs> you you laid it up, and I'm gonna slam it home. That's it. I love it. <laughs> the teamwork teamwork makes the dream work, as no, they say. No question. So, yeah, I started this whole podcast and YouTube channel based on my own struggles communicating with others, especially those that were outside of of my group. I yes. I, I had to give presentations on a monthly basis to senior management, many of whom were were non technical. And I wasn't very good at it at first and I noticed that a lot of the other engineers that had to do it weren't all that great at it either but I eventually saw the benefit of getting of getting better at it because my project was canceled and that's what I basically <laughs> was the, that was that was the that was wake-up call I needed yeah you, yes. need you, you only need to tell me twice so <laughs> once that happened I, I I definitely got I got that wake-up call at what yes. point did you realize that being adept at communicating with others could be a benefit to you
0: I think by nature I am very curious, very inquisitive, um, and very, as I mentioned, detailed. So it is not at all uncommon when someone is talking to me, or maybe more relevant for, for this conversation, if I'm at in a presentation, or you know, even something like being at church, where you know, that's a, a presentation of sort of of sorts there's usually a running monologue in my head when someone is giving a presentation where I'm saying, well, what does that mean? Wait, why is that there? Wait, I thought two minutes ago they said so-and-so. So I am constantly trying to connect the dots and get clarity from what people are telling me. And the impact of that for me has been that when I am talking to someone else, I am trying to anticipate the questions they might have and answer them.
1: Yeah. Is is getting better, well, being adept at communicating with others, is that something that you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it?
0: I think it's a con, I definitely haven't always been good at it. And I certainly wouldn't want to imply that I think I've arrived and have reached the pinnacle of my communication skills. Cause I think there's always room for improvement. But for me, It is, without question, having been on the receiving end of communications, I consider to be unclear and wanting to do better in my own presentations is one thing. I have had presentation coaching. I've had media training in various jobs. So it's a combination of all of that. And then, of course, the practice that comes with day-to-day living and working.
1: With the, the, the training and the coaching that you've gotten, what was the, I guess, the the take-home message from any of that, that training and coaching?
0: One of the take-home messages is that people really don't remember as much as you may think that they're going to remember of what you tell them, trying to distill your key messages into just two or three bullet points, thinking of it as storytelling, you know, giving real thought to the structure of your message and starting with, you know, a grabber or an igniter, something that's going to get people's attention right away. But I would say the the main thing is not expecting people to remember, you know, every, every point that you made, say, in a 30-minute presentation, really trying to hone in and drill down on those two or three main points.
1: I once heard somebody say that people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And people, when they hear that, at least they seem to think that's such a great thing. But When I think about it, it sounds horrible. I spent all this time putting this presentation together and all you got is a feeling. Yes. <laughs> It's like, I actually want you to get something out of this. It's like, there was some sort of call to action. At least, did you remember the call to action, what you are supposed to do?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, it's interesting that you mentioned that quote. I'm familiar with it as well. And that what that makes me think of is the, the fact that there are different communicating settings. So, for example, um, when I think about going to a conference, for example, and there's someone speaking up at the podium, at a conference, that's a very different communication setup than a one-on-one conversation, which is a very different setup than a a briefing of, of senior management. But to your point about how people felt at the end of my presentation, I would hope they felt I knew what I was talking about and that I was a credible source of that information. Because even if the only thing they left with was that feeling. I would hope that would set them up to then come back to me with clarifying questions, asking me to repeat something or whatever the case may be.
1: Yeah, this whole, you know, I felt good afterwards. Well, damn it. I felt good before the presentation. <laughs> I actually need you to do something. So are you, are you feel good enough to do that? How about how about that? You know, <laughs>
0: maybe, maybe they didn't. Maybe they
1: felt inspired
0: to do whatever you asked them to do.
1: Yeah, long hey, whatever you feel, that's cool. As long as it gets done, that's what's all that's important, right? Yes. <laughs> when it comes to the the presentations that you do, do you have a process for putting them together? And if so, what is it?
0: Process might be uh, an overstatement. Uh, I tend to draft electronically in PowerPoint. And my, quote, process is just reviewing the slides, reviewing the slides, reviewing the slides for content and, you know, getting rid of typos, formatting problems, that sort of thing. I could definitely stand some improvement in what I'm going to call the bells and whistles of my slides, you know, getting away from the kind of boring main point with three bullet points on the slide. I do think that there are ways to make slides a lot more visually appealing and a lot more memorable. And I could absolutely stand to level up my game there. But once I get the slide content together, I am a believer in, I guess I'll call it rehearsal, actually spending some time speaking out loud the talking points that I'm going to do, thinking about how I'm going to get from slide to slide, trying to rehearse it enough to get rid of the filler words, you know, the ums, let me think, where am I, that kind of thing. I also want to be very mindful about for each slide, what are the main points I want to emphasize? So I can only work all of that out by actually rehearsing the content, the presentation flow and content out loud.
1: Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of practicing before I hear a presentation too, because what it does, when you do it out loud, it, it, once you hear it, it makes it, makes it clear in your mind firstly, but then it also, it helps you figure out what should come first, what should come second, what should come last, that type of thing. When you just yes. get up there and kind of just go off, you know, just go off the cuff it, and, and it comes out as it comes out. Well, it may not come out in the best way and and if you really are in a in a room with people and you really need them to do something, and and the feeling ain't enough, <laughs> so you, you you really need to put it in such a way that they can understand it right away. You don't want them to have to think about what what does this person what does this person mean. And if you practice beforehand, I think you do a better job of putting it in, in that way.
0: I completely agree with you, and it's sort of a circle, because sometimes when I begin practicing out loud, that then drives some further changes to the content of the slides. So I do work very closely and very carefully to get the presentation in the best shape that I can before I deliver it. That said, there are absolutely times when I have so many presentations to do, that my process make some corners get cut. And what I mean by that is, maybe rather than spending, you know, several hours reviewing the slide content, maybe I only have the opportunity to spend an hour re- reviewing the slide content. But I always feel as if the final presentation suffers for that. So my strong preference is to have a lot of advanced notice to do a presentation. But Of course, there are always those times when senior management, someone you don't want to say no to, ask for a presentation at very short notice. And I also, one of my least favorite scenarios, but it's a scenario I find myself in more than I'd like to, is when I have to give slides that were developed by someone else. That's the hardest thing for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Preventing someone else's words, and it's kind of hard to even go off of them. If you want to ad-lib something, you, you're not really sure if that's even appropriate to do when it's your own stuff, it's it's yes. way easier to do that type of thing. So pre-
0: completely, I, I find that other people's way of organizing information sometimes is not at all intuitive for me. And so it makes the resulting presentation that much harder to deliver. 100%.
1: So for anybody who's listening or watching this conversation, Melody, what would your number one tip be for them to become more effective at giving presentations?
0: Practice, practice, practice. I would say the more time you can spend setting up your slides to then set up your remarks, the better. And also getting very clear on what the purpose of the presentation is and what are the main points that you want to convey and making sure those are baked into the presentation at least once. And even better is when you can start with what you want your audience to do and then wrap up by saying what you want your audience to do.
1: Excellent. Well, this has been a great conversation, Melody. Thank you so much for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you?
0: you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I would say that would be the easiest way to get hold of me. My, I see my name is there on my Zoom square. So if you look up for me on LinkedIn, you will find me there and I would love to hear from people.
1: Excellent. Well, everyone that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Melody.
0: Thanks.
1: Bye. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.